Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and it is time once again for our annual seasonal end-of-the-year play readings. First up of which is a play called New Year's Eve. The playwright is David McGregor of Howell, Michigan. The characters are Laura, a caretaker, played by Sylvian Tima, and Mr. Hollins, played by Ithaca, New York acting legend Milo Bohack. The setting is a retirement home. Well, this is complete and utter bullshit. Let's try and keep a positive attitude. You know what people tell you to keep a positive attitude? When things are complete and utter bullshit. You don't have to talk so loudly. I'll talk as loudly as I goddamn want. You'll disturb the others. Well, they need to be disturbed. Any kind of brain activity at all would be a blessing to most of them. Oh, don't say that. You know it's true. I know you're paid to pretend it's not true, but it's true, and that's that. Other people are enjoying themselves. Look at Mrs. Davis. Mrs. Davis would enjoy herself if you parked her in front of a brick wall for six hours. Although 50 years ago? Hmm, that's a piece of tale I'd have been all over. I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that. Yeah, exactly. That's your job, pretending. Pretending you don't hear, pretending you don't see, pretending you don't think. And you're pretty goddamn good at all three. My job is helping. My job is being kind and considerate and understanding. And ass-wiping. Don't forget the ass-wiping. I bet that's what you hoped you'd end up doing when you were in school, wiping the wrinkly asses of geezers who can't reach back there without falling off the goddamn toilet. Is this really necessary? Is what really necessary? Being this unpleasant, it's New Year's Eve. Tomorrow is a new day, a new year, a, a new... Go on. What else? I'll tell you what else. A new goddamn nothing, that's what else. You want to ask the people here for their New Year's resolutions? Half of them will be, to die in my sleep tonight. No, they won't. This is a vibrant community of senior citizens who have led full, productive lives and who are entitled to enjoy all the benefits of their golden years. Oh, Jesus Christ. What, did you memorize that from the brochure? You must have. No normal human being would talk like that. What I'm saying is no one here is going to make that kind of New Year's resolution you just mentioned. Oh, no? Every time the EMS unit shows up, people can't wheel themselves into the lobby fast enough. Who is it now? They're like a bunch of seals watching one of their own being dragged into the surf by a killer whale. There goes Marge. Oh, they got Joe this time. They're all jostling around in their electric scooters trying to see who's getting carried out of here, knowing that any day now it's going to be them on that stretcher. That's a little morbid, don't you think? No. What's morbid is, every time the lobby fills up with those flashing red and blue lights... And every time you hear the EMS guys squawking on their radios, half of these poor sons of bitches wish it was them with a sheet over their face. What's the matter? Nothing perky and upbeat to say? I don't understand why you have to be like this. Because I'm pissed off, that's why. It's New Year's goddamn even look at me. Am I dressed up? Am I dancing? Am I popping open a bottle of champagne? No. I'm sitting in the lobby of the goddamn Parkview Retirement Home with a limp pecker and a clear head. Son of a bitch. Mr. Hollins, can I get you a, a brownie or some nuts? And what time is it? Hmm? Please, 
Be so kind as to tell me what time it is. It's ten minutes to twelve. Ah, that's good. Ten minutes to twelve, she says. What do you want me to say? That is the correct time. Technically, yes. But not really, and you know it. I think the Barry Manilow impersonator is about to start. He's he's opening with At the Copacabana. It's ten minutes to goddamn noon. Not midnight, noon. Think I don't know that? It's the middle of the goddamn day. I'm aware of that. Then why are we here? The New Year isn't for another 12 hours, so why are we here pretending it starts in 10 minutes? I'm not going to let you bait me. You know very well why. Because we're old. Because we can't stay up late. Because our medications will get out of whack. Right. And instead of having no New Year's celebration at all, we thought it would be nice to have it at noon instead. Lots of retirement places do this. You know something? When you get to a point in your life where you have to celebrate New Year's Eve at noon, someone should have the decency to put a goddamn bullet through your head. Stop that! This is a good thing. Other people like it. They think it's fun. They get a treat. They have some sparkling grape juice. They get a paper hat. It's fun! What are you doing tonight? I'm going to a party. With who? My boyfriend. Ooh. You got a drink? In moderation. Ooh. What are you going to drink? I don't know. Champagne, I suppose. Ooh. And uh, what are you going to eat? You want me to run through the entire menu? Yes. I want you to run through the entire menu. What are you going to eat? I'm not sure. Probably... Some shrimp, maybe some caviar, cheese, you know, appetizer, finger food type things. Okay. So you eat, you drink, it's midnight, the ball drops in Times Square. Then what happens? Well, we'll probably... You're going to get laid? Uh, I am not answering that. Why the hell not? Because that's... Because it's none of your business. That's why not. I'd just feel better about this whole New Year's Eve business if I knew one of us was going to get laid. You're trying to goad me, and I'm not going to let you. Here, let's blow our noisemakers. All right, then. How about a hat? You're kidding me. Other people are wearing hats. Other people are wearing diapers, too. Fine. Don't wear a hat. I'll wear the hat. If you answer one question. What's the question? First the hat, then the question. There. Thank you. Now I look as stupid as everyone else. What's your question? This boyfriend of yours. Is he any good in the sack? Give me that. Hey, we had a deal. No, we didn't. One hat equals one question. I am not responding. That's a funny thing with men. Some guys, they get it up and they can go all night. Other guys, eh, one shot and they're done, straight to sleep. Which one is your boyfriend? I said you could ask a question. I never said I would answer it. Straight to sleep, huh? Listen, instead of worrying about my sex life, why don't you hook up with Mrs. Cavanaugh tonight? She got her hair done, her nails done, and best of all, she's got Alzheimer's, so she won't remember whether or not you could get it up. 
I, I shouldn't have said that. No. I, I'm sorry. That, that was a horrible, horrible thing to say. It's all right. Please, don't tell anyone I said that. No, no, no. This is just between you and me. Thank you. I'm not some blabbermouth. I appreciate that. I still have some common sense, you know. I know you do. And I like the way you think. Oh, oh my God. Please, you, you can't. Mrs. Cavanaugh... Relax. I have about as much interest in banging Mrs. Cavanaugh as I have in banging a dried-out gourd. Good. I, I mean, no, that's not good. I, I mean, it is, but it, it isn't. Let me tell you something. When I was 12 years old, what I wanted more than anything else in the world was to bang a beautiful 18-year-old girl. When I was 18, same thing, 28, same thing, 58, same thing. And today, same thing. You think that feeling will go away, and then after a while, you pray to God it'll go away. And eventually you pretend that it has, you know, just to make everyone feel better. But it never goes away. It's a hell of a thing to want to live when you should already be dead. Mr. Holland, I don't want you to feel this way. Yeah, that makes two of us. What do you want? Want? I want to feel that little burn of the bubbles as the first glass of champagne slides down my throat. Maybe some caviar and toast. I want the girl I'm with to edge closer to me so I can feel her warmth, smell the sandalwood perfume she has on, and feel her fingers curling around mine when midnight is a minute away. And I want to know that this year, more than any other year, this year is going to be the best goddamn year of my life. That's what New Year's Eve is about. Not this. It's not this. Oh, no. I don't want to see this. Look, I want you to have a good time at your party. I'll do my best. Now, I want you to appreciate it. I will. Promise me. You won't listen to any Barry Manilow. <laughs> I won't listen to Barry Manilow. God damn it. I'll bring you back some of that champagne. We're not supposed to have champagne. That is complete and utter bullshit. That was New Year's Eve by playwright David McGregor. David was kind enough to spare us a few minutes to talk about his work. And we decided the first question should be, simply because I have no imagination whatsoever and I'm the worst at eloquent segues, decided to ask him, where'd you get the inspiration for this particular play? The inspiration came from a flyer uh, due to the fact that my mother-in-law is at an assisted living facility, and I think my wife brought it home, or I came across it, and it was quite literally a flyer for New Year's Eve, uh, a New Year's Eve party at the assisted living facility, which is about a mile from my house. And when I saw that they were holding it at noon, I knew I had to go, and so I went. And I, you know, recognized kind of immediately the appeal 
from a narrative perspective is that New Year's is supposed to be, it's a party, it's wonderful, it's great, it's renewal, it's rebirth. Mm-hmm. But the yeah. fact that you're having it at noon at a retirement community adds a whole different uh, level to it, a whole different meaning to it. And it's at once wonderful, but at once horrible and tragic and pathetic at the same time. Yeah, I was, I was kind and, of wondering uh, about that. New Year's Eve in a place where so many people might not see another New Year's Eve. I mean, how many years have they logged so far? I mean, for many of them, it's 80, 90 years. And I'm guessing looking towards the future is not the optimistic uh, vision that it might have been once. Exactly. Exactly, which is why I, I wanted to go and not just, you know, speculate what it might be like, but to actually be there and be there for the, the you know, ringing in of the new year, supposedly, even though it was at noon, not midnight. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they play it straight. You know, they had, uh, you know, somebody lowering a tinsel ball from the second floor, you know, to the first floor at noon and... Everybody blew their noisemakers, and, you know, they're not allowed to have alcohol, so it's sparkling grape juice and nuts. And it's also, you know, achingly well-intentioned, and yet just heartbreaking. You know, it's just, it's heartbreaking. Um, And so I sat there and just kind of mentally took notes, and I went home and, and wrote the play, and... Yeah, people have done the play. It's been performed at a number of festivals around the world. It was just published in Best 10-Minute Plays of 2015. So it obviously struck a chord with people that have uh, seen it or heard it. Yeah, no, it's 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 very uncomplicated. It's just it's so straightforward that it seems like it's over before you know it. And yet what you're left with is, I don't know, this... this unreconcilable, you know, aching in in um in, in the gentleman's gentleman's heart and her, you know, um her desire to try and make things better and knowing that there's absolutely nothing she can do. Yeah, and it it's also it's you know, a lot of times we're kind of encouraged to or we kind of instinctively look at other people as alien to us or different than us because of age or because of um, gender, race, sexual orientation, whatever. And mm-hmm, yeah. you're kind of, you're just yelling at each other across this chasm. And, you know, the play starts off that way. These, these are two people that are not really communicating um, at all. They're both kind of in their own worlds. And in the course of 10 minutes, what I hope comes across is that they kind of connect over their common humanity um, this was you, and this will be me, and we have that, you know, yeah. and that they, 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 they come to kind of an understanding uh, for each other as human beings. So, I found myself wondering after, uh, well, certainly after I read it the first time, uh, and after we taped it, what the thoughts would have been in Laura's head as she went out to her party that night. I kept, I'm thinking, I'm wondering, uh, it's... There's a whole second chapter that... I mean, plays are supposed to make you think, I believe, or give you pause or give you a perspective or be a tiny watershed moment in your life. And and I'm looking at this thing from Laura's point of view as much as I can, being, you know, an old white male, but um, 
I'm thinking, what would her New Year's be, and what would her success of New Year's be now that she is faced with this unchangeable reality? I mean, you know, certainly death is looking somebody in the face here. Yeah, well, I, I think that, yeah, I, I agree with you, first of all, that, I mean, I much prefer stories, books, plays, movies that ask questions as opposed to providing answers that I, I walk out of the theater thinking about what I've just seen and not just kind of chalking it off to, you know, those were some great CGI, you know, special effects. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, from that perspective, uh, you know, what what is she going to be thinking or feeling? I guess in my mind, you don't want to wreck the world for everybody. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> life, life is there to be appreciated and enjoyed. And, you know, just the, the moment is what it is. But also try to have a little bit of perspective um, for what is happening to you as it's happening to you. And I've always had kind of a real intense nostalgia for the present. Right. Like, I, I understand how it's passing, even as I'm experiencing it. And so maybe something along along those lines. I mean, you want to go out, you want to have fun, you want to have, you know, champagne, you want to kiss your boyfriend. But just also have an appreciation for this is passing. Right. And I, I, really, need, I really need to appreciate this moment um, in this moment and not take it for granted. Uh, I think that's basically it. Yeah, I, I find myself um, at this particular time in my life, I'm, I'm mid-50s at this point, and so many things that you know I've enjoyed throughout my life or people that I've known or icons that I grew up with uh, have moved on, passed away and such. And right now, I think you know if, if I had to come up with some kind of motto or legend or caption for the past couple of years is that everything is transitory. Everything is transitory. Yeah. You know, nothing is permanent. Um, and I think I think you know uh, your play captures that exceptionally well. Um, so let's move on a little bit. Let's 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 go to something a tad more cheery. I was looking at your website. And uh, it said that you've just finished a new play, and the title has uh, just grabbed me right away, and I've, I've got to find out more about this. It's called The Antichrist Cometh. Right, yeah, now, well, actually, yeah, I need to yeah, update the, web, the website, because I've written another play since then. I'd always had, in, for reasons I don't even know why, um, a fascination with the character of Sherlock Holmes, Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I've embarked on this like nonfiction book on Sherlock Holmes and why the character keeps changing and why it's popular. And it, that's such a pain in the butt, you know, doing the research and getting everything right. Sure. That I thought I've always want I've always wanted to write a Sherlock Holmes play, and so I just thought I'm in that world, I'm in that mindset. So I just finished a Sherlock Holmes play that uh, the theater where I'm a resident artist. It's called the Purple Rose Theater in Michigan. They've tentatively said they're going to be doing it in 2017-18. And it's, yeah, Vincent Van Gogh comes to Sherlock Holmes to help him recover his lost ear. And that's the play. So that's the latest play. (laughs) I love it. What's it called? It's called Sherlock Holmes and the Adventure of the Elusive Ear. Uh, (laughs) Uh... I, w- I would be so intrigued just by the title of that. That's that's great. Um, 
Okay, so you're a Sherlock Holmes aficionado, so I'm going to have to ask you, who's your favorite Sherlock Holmes? Uh, well, see there, and that's why I'm writing this freaking book that's driving me out of my mind, is you have definitive uh, portrayals of this character for the past 115 years. And it right. starts with a guy named William Gillette, who was the stage definitive stage Sherlock Holmes and then you have Basil Rathbone the definitive film and then you had mm -hmm. Jeremy Brett the definitive TV and then right. most recently you've had three guys you know Robert Downey Jr. Uh, Johnny Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch are all kind of jostling and all out of those clearly Cumberbatch is the most uh, compelling uh, portrayal of the character so there's been like three and a half definitive versions and I I like them all. The cool thing, you may or may not know this, the cool thing about William Gillette is he was this legendary stage actor. And he wrote, he directed, he acted, uh, built his own castle in Connecticut, a very idiosyncratic guy. And he was uh, prevailed upon in 1916 to film his play, which he did, and then which disappeared. Like a lot of silent films disappear or, they, you know, just dissolve mm -hmm. or get repurposed. Oh, yeah. And then two but then two years ago, uh, it was just, uh, rediscovered in an archive in France, and uh, they put the film back together, and it's now available. You can you know, buy the blue uh, the Blu-ray of the DVD, and see him uh, in his his iconic role, and he he played that role from 1899 to 1935. Wow! And is this the only yeah. recording we have of him? Yep. Yeah, there's a there's a, also there's a two minute like Fox little newsreel. Uh, it's a little sound newsreel of him at his estate. Um, he built his own railroad on his estate, a little miniature railroad, and it's basically him just taking you through his castle grounds on his miniature railroad. Uh, he's a very bizarre guy. He didn't give interviews to the press. Um, he always was wishing people Merry Christmas, regardless of what time of year it was. Um, and he's one of those people who, you know, he actually made a fortune because he directed, wrote, produced um, his plays. Um, so, yeah, I'd be, I'd be hard-pressed to tell you. I really like Benedict Cumberbatch, but I thought mm. Jeremy Brett was just great. I, th I thought I, they I, were all good in, in their different, uh, different yeah. iterations. And yeah. I've had this argument with other people. Of course, Benedict Cumberbatch is... He's, absolutely outstanding at what he does it seems like that's the role that he was born to play um yeah uh, but i also find myself uh very much liking the robert downey jr uh characterization and i've had arguments with well discussions uh with folks who say oh you know he's, he's just a big star you know uh, uh gallivanting all over the stage and, and hamming it up and yes that's probably true but a lot of the things that I saw in the movies, you could trace back to sentences and elements within the original stories that have a sound basis for all the way they've, you know, they've hyped up that particular, you know, Guy Ritchie uh, totally hyped up the character for, for the movies. Yeah, yeah, they do that. They're not quite as the people who do uh, Sherlock for BBC are mm -hmm. so Sherlockified. They have all kinds of immensely cool little tricks and secrets in that series, like uh, references or like who they cast in certain roles. Mm -hmm. um, Some of it's very tongue-in-cheek. It is. Uh, and I, I think when people kind of get down on the Robert Downey Jr., it's because 
uh, the films to a certain extent get they kind of get dominated by the the special effects. Yes, and they do. you know, people, yeah. yeah, people they associate Sherlock Holmes as more of a character study, the relationship between him and Watson, and yeah, I, I get that. I mean, I like his performance. I think he's a great actor. Um, but yeah, he's not. He's not. Even though I believe he's now either making or contemplating doing Sherlock Holmes three, he he just doesn't have the you know, the reaction of people saying, oh, my God, that is Sherlock Holmes. Right. It's like, right. you know, because he's also Iron Man. It's a, or, it's or, a fun or, portrayal or of such, yes. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. I, mean, it's, I don't think anybody's going to say he's the definitive, but he's always fun to watch. I yeah. also noticed that you're doing a television series. You're developing a television series with Timothy Busfield and Melissa Gilbert, and right. it's going to be shot in one of my favorite places in the entire world, which is the UP. Michigan's Upper Peninsula. So right. tell us about the series and tell us where in the UP. Is any, any of it going to be in Marquette by any chance? It's close to Marquette. It's not really in Marquette. No, basically it's it's just, uh, like I said, I'm, I, I write plays for this theater in Michigan called the Purple Rose Theater that was founded by Jeff Daniels 25 years ago, the actor Thank Jeff you. Daniels. Right, who's also a player himself. Yes. And he's friends with uh, Tim Busfield and Melissa Gilbert, who moved about 15 minutes away from me. And they were talking to, apparently, as it was explained to me, they had been talking to Jeff, and he said, you should talk to David about if you want to do a TV series. And so they did. And we just talked about it, and I ended up writing kind of a six-part series set in the Upper Peninsula. Uh, set in a little town called Baraga, and the whole the whole premise is it's like uh, you know horrific crime has taken place, but no one exactly knows whose jurisdiction it is because it's on the edge of an Indian reservation, and then it's on the edge of a county, it's on the edge of a city, and so this uh, FBI agent from Dallas comes in and is ostensibly in charge of it, and that's the character that that's going to be played by Melissa Gilbert. Um, it's kind of a bit of a stretch from her little house on the prairie days. But that was a long time ago, too, so, yeah. Yeah, and so right now, I mean, the way things work with TV and movies, everyone gets excited, and it's the flavor of the minute, and Mm -hmm. um, that's, you know, right now, I I know that they're trying to set up a deal with PBS. Um, PBS has read the scripts. They like it, and at this point, it's just a question of, lawyer people trying to figure out the money and contracts and stuff oh, and if it works good out luck with that yeah i know i know that's why i do plays too because i can actually <laughs> I, I know plays are going to get done right uh the last film i had done was actually based on one of my plays so so uh, uh which one was that it's called vino veritas which is kind of a dark comedy in fact the purple rose in michigan they're doing a revival of it this coming March. They premiered it in 2008. And it's been produced in a few places around the U.S. and Canada. And I, I was approached by a woman. Um, she's a director from New York whose mother had seen the play in Nebraska, of all places, and ended up making a movie, largely because the first two actors we gave the script to said yes. Uh, I'm in, nice. and they're not yeah. they're, they're not world famous, but we gave it to an actress. Her name is Carrie Preston. And she's most famous for being on True Blood, and she just won an Emmy, I think, two years ago for The Good Wife. And she's just an amazing actress, and she read the script, she said, I'm in. 
And so we took it from there and made this kind of you know independent film, shot it in Nebraska in 12 days, and it did really well. It was in a bunch of festivals, won you know various prizes. It's available on iTunes, you know Amazon Prime. Uh, weirdly enough, I'm not I'm not sure if you think this is an interesting detail, but you know people can rate stuff on iTunes and Amazon, right. like liked it, hated it, and. Uh, so the reviews are like, it's a dark comedy. So there's it's stuff to offend people if they want to be offended. And, you know, people were either saying they, they, they loved it, it was amazing, or it's like it was horrible and offensive. And then it got released in uh, Britain, on, on uh, United Kingdom, Amazon Prime. And the reviews there have just been consistently stellar, like no negativity at all. Hmm. So there's like some kind of like cultural difference or shift between yeah, obviously yeah you know, us and them. I think a lot of people in this country they still you know you're kind of founded on a Puritan heritage. Oh, I think that's like, still extremely strong. Yeah, so I yeah. disapprove, and people shouldn't watch this. And well, as you might guess, because it's called vino veritas, which is just there's an old Latin expression. There's truth in wine, right? Which basically means people are more truthful when they're drunk. And it's kind of, it's a fable almost. It's two couples, Halloween night. They imbibe this beverage, three of them do, that is supposed to have truth-telling qualities. And so that's what it's, it's a play about that. And it starts off kind of funny and amusing, and then it gets darker and darker because it's about the kind of truths that you might think, but you're uh-huh. sure as hell not going to ever tell anybody because... You'd be shunned and you know taken away in a white jacket. And... Now, once people start telling the truth, it's going to get ugly. There's a um, there's a saying that I've encountered uh, through d- different forms of research I've done over the years, and it keeps popping up from completely disparate cultures. And the one I like best is uh, I think it's either Turkish or uh, Middle East. It says, "If you're going to tell the truth, have one foot in the stirrups." Yeah, that's a that's a yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And if you sat down and you had a perfectly candid, no filter conversation with your partner, with your best friends, would the conversation would your friendship survive that conversation? <laughs> that's a you know? legitimate question. And you know, it's uh, it to me. I, we kind of live in a world in which people. You know, there's like two groups of people. Some people, they want the truth, no yeah. matter how painful it might be. Well, and other people, the truth. other people, they want to avoid it. Right. At all costs. Uh-huh. And you, you tell me any kind of nonsense, and yeah, that must be true. You know, because it's kind of a culture now in which it's more important. What do you want to be true? And then I'll tell you that. Right. And then you can feel better. A, it's the so. truth from whose perspective, first of all. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, uh, the truth is. Well, here I, I, I can put it to you like in a really kind of hopefully short form. It just part of the writing the play was uh, when I had our son, I was kind of like Mr. Mom, uh, and I would you know teach at night or write at night, and I'd hang out with him during the day, and. I took him to the park on a spring morning. He's one years old. He's barely walking. And it just does, and there's two other little kids, they're three-year-olds, and my son's very happy, very gregarious. He walks up to these three-year-old twins, you know, new friends, yeah. and the first, the first three-year-old pushes him, and the second three-year-old punches my son in the face and knocks him down. 
Ouch. And I jumped up from the bench I was sitting on, and I'm not exaggerating when I say I was going to murder them. Not, you know, chastise, not look for a parent. I was going to rip their little heads off. We got an angry daddy on the march. Well, and that's, you know, when I, you know, I didn't obviously do that. I just kind of picked my son up and redirected him. But I sat back down on the bench, and I was just shaking from the adrenaline rush, the rage that I felt. And I'm, yeah. I'm sitting there trying to even process, like, what the hell is this? I thought I was a thoughtful, decent, kind human being. Mm-hmm. But you realize mm-hmm. somewhere in you is a mommy crocodile. You know, that DNA is in you. Yeah. And you mess, you mess with my kid, and all of a sudden, I'm not even remotely human anymore. And you still do have I want a to large admit, part of the animal within us. Yeah. Now, do I want to admit that to people at, you know, a nice party? Oh, yeah, it's going to kill two three-year-olds. Well, you just did on no. a podcast. Yeah, I just did. Well, because I, I'm a writer, and that's what I do. I put I, that stuff that you normally wouldn't say yeah. or would be shameful or humiliating to admit. I'm going to put it out there. And some people get a little offended. You know, they walk out of the play or they write nasty notes. But then other people uh, thank me. Yeah, well, you're not going to please anybody by any means, that's for sure. I think the best thing you can do is write the truth as you see it and let it fly. Yeah. And um, that's part of what art should be. Exactly, yeah. It's not necessarily to make you feel better about yourself. It's to make you ask questions. And it should be, at times, it should be upsetting. You know, not not gratuitously offensive, but make you kind of uh, take stock of, okay, who am I and why am I the way I am? Art is supposed to reflect life, not rearrange it. So, (laughs) you know, there's got to be a truth in there someplace, and the truth, as we know, is sometimes very difficult to take. But... um, Speaking of difficult yeah. to take, let's uh, let's let's. I'm, I'm, I want to close out with a couple of uh, small things here I, <laughs> that I noticed, which I really want to get around to. Um, why did your grandpa wash his hair with scotch? My grandfather, my parents were both immigrants from Scotland, and uh, they basically got married and took the first boat over here. And when I went back there as an adult, I realized why they left. Um, and my grandfather, who I met once when I was a child, was very much a kind of character and really bright guy, but a working class guy. And at one point, you know, he was working for black and white scotch, the, the scotch company you know, with yes. the little terriers. Yep. And he got it into his head. You know, he was going a bit uh, thin up top. He got it into his head that washing his hair with scotch would promote hair growth. And so, you know, you tell me, you know, he was an uh, odd guy. Uh, no, no, it, it was not the Rogaine of its day. But, <laughs> you know, I, you tell me, you know, having eccentric relatives is, is mm-hmm. actually kind of a good thing from a writer's perspective, though. That's a so. wonderful thing. It's a goldmine of, of um, <laughs> amazing characterizations. Yeah, well, my like my uncle would come over here and he'd, brought his bagpipes with him. He'd be walking up and down the hall in the house playing his bagpipes. The dogs would be going berserk. And... Uh, yes. Elevating cle- moments. Clear the childhood. house in three minutes. <clears throat> yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I actually, I tried to play the bagpipes, and it is a lot harder than you might think. I would, I actually thought they were hard to begin with, just looking at the, at yeah. the, this contraption. And literally, it is a contraption. It doesn't seem like a machine. It seems like a contraption. But the sound, right. when it's played well, is gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's played well. It's gorgeous. I mean, and there's yeah. certain songs, I mean, I, I, I kind of like, I mean, it's a conditioned response. I just start crying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Sure. I, I, so. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing thing. We, okay. Last, last couple of questions, then I'll let you go. Um, sure. Were you really hung in effigy, and why was your writing burned in public? Did you um, did you upset somebody? Yes, yeah. Uh, hung in effigy because a friend of my wife's had this yearly Oscar party. I never went to the party, but she always thought it would be fun to have as many people as possible make all their Oscar picks, and everybody would put in a dollar or five dollars, and whoever picked the most won the money, and... I think I'd won like three or four years in a row, and then I won the fifth year because you know my, my secret was I don't care who wins, I don't care. I have not, no vested interest in oh that was a great performance. I would just pick who I thought would win, you know. And mm-hmm. so they got drunk enough and pissed <laughs> off enough that I was apparently I was apparently hung in effigy. Um, I was not there to, to witness it. Well, take and the, the, I don't blame them because you know if, if if they're all worried about who wins and they're thinking about it and they have their favorites and they're they're invested in this, and then you walk in devil may care and just walk away with it every oh sure yeah. Well, the worst thing is I teach movie classes. I teach film classes at Wayne State University in Detroit, and so they quite seriously thought it was it was fixed that I knew who was going to ah, win. It was somehow okay. rigged. And the writing thing was just, it was a humor magazine in college. I went to Michigan State. My best friend went to Eastern Michigan. He was the editor of the humor magazine, cleverly called the EMU, E-M-U, for Eastern Michigan University. And he had mm-hmm. called me up and said, I'm doomed. I need help. All this material I'm getting is really bad. You know, can you help me out? And so I came down. And over a hot weekend, we put together this whole humor magazine. And the funny thing is this. We were so proud of ourselves. We thought we took out all the really, really objectionable stuff. Oh boy! Like, aren't we being good citizens? And then it came out, and you know, some people, you know, said this is the best humor magazine ever. But then there was apparently, <laughs> you know, there's apparently enough in there to uh, upset uh, some people. So yeah, yeah. apparently, yeah, you know, box, boxes of it were burned in protest because we defended this group or that group. So. Well, I think you should put both that and the effigy hanging on your resume because they both belong there. David McGregor, well, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you, and thank you again for your wonderful play, New Year's Eve, uh, which we had a great time doing. Tell us, uh, tell our audience how we can find out more about you. What's your website? And um, you on Twitter or Instagram? No, I'm not. I'm not savvy enough to do Twitter and Instagram. And those are just big, huge time sucks. Anyway, uh, I do have a website. It is just uh, david-macgregor.com. I've got upcoming events. Uh, people can check out my movie Vino Veritas. That's available online, and or you know you can just email me yourself. 
I'm easy to find if you want to look at anything that I've ever written or you want to chastise me for being a bad human being. <laughs> that's fine, too. Um, What's your email? I'm on, what, uh, my email is uh, D M A C G R E G O R 77 at gmail.com. And your website? Uh, is D A V I D hyphen M A C G R E G O R dot com. Fantastic. And yeah, plays are available through different publishers, or if they're not published, they're available for licensing through me. Right now, I'm working on the Sherlock Holmes nonfiction book, and after that, I'm going to create a website totally devoted to hate. <laughs> okay. So I'll, leave you, I'll leave you with. I'll leave you. Well, it's kind of it's in the air, right? It's in the air. Yes, it is. Unfortunately, who should we hate, and how should we hate them, and who well, hates should us? Should we uh, have to hate anybody? That's my question. Yeah, well, it's kind of along. It's my whole premise is along lines of uh, Jonathan Swift's "A Modest Proposal." Yes, I'm very familiar with that. So that kind of satiric take mm -hmm. on it, like that's that's my approach. So that's that's up next. Good luck. You're certainly not shying away from uh, controversial subjects. David McGregor, Why good luck I? with everything you're coming up with, and um, we're looking forward to hearing more about you in the future. Well, thanks so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. Hey, kids, thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater that we haven't yet covered, oddly enough, or know someone in the theater world who'd make good chat, please send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Our intro and outro music is Surf Far, Surf Good by the composer Steve Channon. You can hear more of his work on SoundCloud. Onstage Offstage wishes to let its listeners know that we believe in and advocate for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace, without fear, and as nature has ordained. We believe in zero tolerance for acts of hate and bigotry. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people, no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender orientation. On Stage, Off Stage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again, and happy theatering to all of you. <laughs>